Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and we hope everybody is having a great Thanksgiving weekend and hope that everybody has a great Hanukkah starting tonight. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As the United States was celebrating a Thanksgiving that was to mark a return to normalcy, the World Health Organization convened a special meeting to discuss a new COVID variant from South Africa that has, quote, a large number of mutations, end quote, more than 30 of them to the spike protein that could make it more resistant to antibodies and vaccines. That news sent commercial aerospace and airline stocks down 8 to 12 percent and defense stocks down 3 percent. This as other nations consider joining Austria and the Netherlands in locking down as COVID cases overall among both vaccinated and unvaccinated rise. Belgium and other countries have detected the new variant dubbed the B11529 or the Omicron variant as nations around the world, including Britain and the United States, close their borders to African nations. To date, the COVID pandemic has killed 776,000 Americans and 5.2 million worldwide, and most think that these numbers are on the low side, not on the high side. Inflation continues to rise, in part because of the severity of the last COVID wave, the Delta variant that was was exacerbated by opposition to mask and vaccination mandates. Uh, We are also going to be talking about the link between Black Friday and belly cargo, Uh, And also in an address in Boston, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon apologized not once but twice after joking that America's largest investment bank would outlive the Chinese Communist Party, initially noting that he uh, could make that joke in America but not in China and appeared to lament Beijing's ability to curb criticism far from its borders by using its giant market uh, as a weapon. Uh, J.P. Morgan in August was granted approval to run the first foreign-owned investment bank in China. Canada appears to have dropped Boeing's F-18 from the competition uh, for its new fighter, leaving a duel between the F-35 by Lockheed Martin and the Gripen E by Saab. Croatia finalized the deal uh, to acquire a dozen former French Air Force Rafale fighters. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tews of the independent London research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, uh, hope you're uh, Ron and Richard. Hope you guys are having a great Thanksgiving. And Sash, thanks for just being you. It's great to be here, Vaga. Wouldn't be um, a Thanksgiving without this. Thank you, Volko. Very happy Thanksgiving to you all. Absolutely. Happy Thanksgiving. Indeed. Thanks very, very much all. This would only be better if we could be be having a a turkey dinner uh, with all of us around the table. Uh, And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And I should point out that we've got two new podcasts that uh, everybody ought to be checking out the Cavus Ships podcast with our very own contributing editor, Christopher Cavus, uh, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues every week, and our new space podcast called The Downlink with Laura Winter, uh, who takes a deep dive into issues, all issues uh, space. So please check those programs out. 
Uh, they're absolutely terrific and part of a series uh, of additional podcasts that we'll be rolling out over the coming months. Uh, Ron, start us off right. The world was um, grappling with inflation, uh, worries about supply chain uh, during Christmas, right? I mean, the big challenge is we've got a lot of companies where they make a lot of their money at this time of the year. Uh, we have supply chain issues, and now we've got word that there is another uh, potentially very dangerous uh, variant of COVID out there. The markets uh, took a beating uh, on Friday on this, on this news. Walk us through both the week we had before this news and what this news means uh, going forward. And and uh, Richard, right, you've been very bullish, maybe somewhat more tempered, but still bullish about what the prospect uh, is for a recovery. And, and obviously, th- this could be something big, or it could be something not as big. Ron, start us off. Yeah, so it's a, um, kind of a, a tale of two different weeks during during one week. I mean, it, it's, since it's a holiday week in the US, um, you know, trading volumes in the week got were relatively light. Uh, particularly into the holiday and uh, even after the holiday uh, on Friday, uh, be it that many folks are out of the office. Um, into the, the pre-COVID news, uh, the, the new COVID news, if you will, uh, uh, the market was relatively sideways on the week. Uh, it was pretty uneventful, uh, honestly. Uh, and then the price action on the week really came in on Friday where you know we've seen uh, the commercial aerospace stocks uh, globally um, get hit pretty hard. Uh, and this, you know, it's it's early days, right? But when you see those headlines, uh, I think the market um, is kind of shooting first and is going to, you know, account for everything a little bit later, uh, just because it's been through this before. Uh, there was expectations in the investment community, uh, I think, that this would be a, a relatively smooth recovery. And I think the feeling among folks was, you know, pre the news of this variant that, you know, maybe we're really getting this thing behind us with. Uh, the, the vaccination um, regiment going on in the U.S. and other nations and everything moving along. And, and then the, uh, the treatment, the potential treatment with the, the pill from Merck. Uh, and then all of a sudden this pops up. Um, it's early days, right, honestly. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist and many players in the market aren't. Although we're all kind of at this point, uh, when you want to call it, um, lazy boy uh, epidemiologist at this. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. But I think the market's just saying, okay, well, you know, here we go. Here's another, you know, another hurdle we got to get through. Um, so we'll we'll see where this all plays out. But you know, the, the story for the week, at least in commercial aero, is um, is is this 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 COVID variant. But remember, um, Friday was a light trading day. It's a half a trading day. It was a half a trading day. So I think the real market reaction, at least in the U.S., will be how markets open on uh, early uh, next week, Monday, how Monday plays out. Um, you know, Europe was a full trading session and so is, so is Asia. Um, so if there are indicators of ultimately how things are going to be on Monday, um, it will probably be a pretty bumpy Monday. Um, Sash, uh, let's uh, let's go to you and get your sense and take on this. Right, uh, UK uh, is among those countries closing its borders to six African nations. Uh, but unfortunately, one of the things that we've realized with this virus is you you can try to stop it, but once in a, you know every once in a while, by the time it's been reported somewhere, it it may actually be a little bit more prevalent than we thought it was. Right when we do the after actions, what's your sense on what all of all of this uh, means uh, at this point? Right, because the concern is that this uh, virus may be more resistant to vaccinations and uh, to antibodies. Yeah, I mean, first of all, just the uh, the stock uh, behavior on Friday in Europe. And as Ron pointed out, you know, we had a full trading day. Oh, boy, it felt like a full trading day. 
the big civil aerospace stocks were down in double digits. Airbus down 11%, nearly 12% at one stage. MTU Aero Engines 9 getting on for 10. Rolls-Royce down 11%. Safran down 9%. These were huge falls. And even the defense companies uh, were down, or they, the mixed aerospace and defense companies were down 3 to 4% each. Um, and, and so it was a really brutal uh, trading day. And these were not stocks that when the US, well, in as much as the US market opened, when the US market opened, it wasn't that we saw a, a bounce or anything. Actually, they sort of just kept on trickling off, which was a, a really, really weak end to the um, previous seven days or so. Uh, and yeah, we may not be epidemiologists, but we have seen what, you know, what happens after announcements like this before. And I think that uh, traders are taking the view, cut prices first, you know, look for the data a long time thereafter. What was very interesting about the actual announcements that came out on Friday morning, um, the South Africans, the WHO in particular, um, uh, put out the announcement uh, about the uh, new variant. But the UK reacted incredibly fast. The UK government has historically been slow to react, particularly with travel bans. It's been one of the major um, criticisms that has been made against Boris Johnson's government. And this time, UK government, you know, news of B11529 B came out. UK government just put a ban straight on six uh, Southern African countries, um, which would have made it very, very difficult for those flights that were coming in overnight. Um, because I think they would have they would have taken off in the anticipation that they were fine and, and arrived and gone straight into quarantine. Uh, we'll see how that develops over the weekend. But I think that even the UK government, which is very laissez-faire by the standards of a lot of European governments, is realising you cannot afford to uh, you know, mess around and wait for the data as far as these things are concerned. Put the travel ban in first uh, and you, know, you then buy yourself a bit of time. And the, the comments that are coming out from the UK uh, medical chiefs are very much, this will get into the UK and, you know, you, you can replicate to every other developed nation around the world. It will get, get here eventually, but travel bans just buy time. And the one thing we need at the moment is time. We need time to do, do the gene sequencing, time to work out actually how this uh, variant presents itself. Um, and probably time also just to get people back into sensible behavior in terms of social distancing, mask wearing and, and everything else. But it really was a very, very quick reaction. And I think that's what's so interesting about this. Um, the underlying fundamentals for international air travel are probably pretty good, but governments are not prepared to take chances. And, uh, and so I think we, you know, what we'll see in terms of the recovery over the next two, three years or so is a lot of stops and starts or indeed starts and reverses. Um, because um, governments have got no intention of taking their foot off the brake if there's any possibility at all that they're going to have to put it back on again in a, in a few months' time. As we've said so often in this program, right, the virus uh, gets a vote, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully we're going to see that this might not uh, be uh, as bad, but it's always uh, better to be more proactive uh, th than not. So kudos to the government for moving a little more quickly this time than it, than it has in the past. Fogo, I'd say it's not just the virus has a vote. I would say it's the it's the old military saying incoming fire has right of way. That's what we're seeing at the moment. <laughs> That's uh, that's that's exactly that's exactly uh, true. And in from naval parlance, right, tonnage always has the right of way. Um, Richard, um, 
you know, you you've been uh, somewhat more bullish about a, about a rebound. We talked a little bit about how you you may be tempering some of your uh, expectations, even though I think you know you think that the macro story arm will be going in a positive direction from your standpoint. What does this uh, news means? Um, you know, given we know so little at this point. Yeah, uh, and uh, running the risk of being the worst sort of uh, per run, uh, you know. Barclay lounger epidemiologist, you know, the one thing it's important to remember, not to, not to, you know, look at this through rose-colored glasses, but it's important to remember that most mutations follow in evolutionary biological path of getting better at getting through, but not killing the host. In other words, less lethality, but greater transmission rates. Hopefully, this is something that will, well, at least for the second one, follow that pattern and be less lethal in order to spread itself faster. Um, you know, and that's some consolation because, you know, so far it's had a lethality rate of about 1.5%. It would be terrific uh, <laughs> if it were to come down from that um, and become more manageable and more of a flu type event. Um, having said that, you know, I mean, a lot of these folks look at advanced bookings and they anticipate in advanced bookings and they probably assume that, advanced bookings will be down as a consequence for some period of time until this thing is uh, sequenced, identified, and whatever else. Uh, and then on the less optimistic side, uh, per sash, yes, you know, it's sort of RAF 1930-something, the bomber will always get through. Uh, and of course, this there's no question that this mutation will spread, hopefully in a less lethal form. I, I see we, we now have air, land, uh, and sea uh, uh, cliches uh, that we have all mobilized in, in making this uh, argument. Ron, if you want to take it in a similar direction, you can. I want to get to you uh, because we are in a slower economic recovery, uh, in part because of the opposition to mask mandates and to uh, vaccination mandates. If, if we're going to go into another round of this, right? There's a, there's a tendency of thinking, well, you know, people are tired and it's about time to move on. I mean, we've been having this conversation from the very beginning. If we had done a better job on some of these things, we wouldn't be in, you know, we wouldn't have nearly 800,000 dead uh, ultimately. And, and there are more people who've died because they weren't wearing masks and they didn't want to take vaccinations. Um, how, does, how does the dynamics of this play out, do you think, if we get into another tough spot, right? I mean, we're in a tougher economic pickle now because of that. Um, I mean, what's your sense ultimately about, you know, in the, in the event that we're gonna have to go draconian again and go tough again, what that means and what does it mean economically now as, as we're, you know, it's, it's Black Friday, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who make a lot of money in this period. Um, and for some companies, it's it's a large amount of their annual revenues come toward the latter part of the year in the in the holiday season. I mean, what's your sense here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, if if things went draconian, it, it's not good, right? And that that's a sort of understatement. Um, you know, the real question, I think, ultimately becomes, from an economic point of view, you know, the the Fed was already looking at inflation and what what had happened from a stimulus point of view domestically and internationally and starting to um, discussion in the market was around, okay, and when's the Fed got to kind of taper? When does this have to slow down? When does the Fed have to start raising rates and, you know, and make the monetary environment a little bit tougher? Um, it makes that a lot less clear. Um, and then it also brings into question so much global uh, monetary firepower has been thrown at this. 
um, how, how much do you have left? And then what's, what's the meaning for the broader economy if, if that were to happen? Um, ultimately, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, as everyone, I, I hope we don't go down that path, right? I mean, it's just, I, I think the, the reality of this is, and this is just you know, you know, one guy's unofficial opinion, and to be clear, I've got a PhD in aerospace engineering, nothing you know, biological, but hopefully we're, we're shifting towards just an endemic, I mean, it's endemic thing. It's going to, you know, some, it's going to have its cycles ups and downs and, um, and as a world, we're going to figure out how to live with it and work with it and travel around it and uh, just get better at operating with it, you know, in, um, amongst us. Um, you know, but ultimately, Vago, that your question, the scenario where you, you do go draconian, it's tougher now because, you know, a, a lot of firepower has been used on it and, it and it's okay, well, where to now? It becomes from a, you know, government policy perspective and uh, from a tactical policy pr perspective globally, it just gets more difficult at this point. Um, around the horn on that, uh, Sash and Richard? Praying for it to become endemic. Endemic is just fine at the moment. But as I said, governments are taking the precautionary principle. Richard? I share Ron's concern about the lack of ammunition in response to this. But remember, it really felt in 2008 uh, that we were all in, you know, <laughs> and that massive amounts of liquidity had been dumped into things and this dwarfed that. Um, in other words, not to sound like some sort of modern monetary theory uh, person who just thinks we should keep printing money, but you know, we've had a remarkable degree of latitude in the world of finance, not that I'm in that world, but looking at it, to deal with crises like this. And uh, I, I think there's hopefully still a bit of uh, flexibility left. My frustration is fighting masks, fighting vaccinations. Uh, fighting social distancing, all of that thing made our situation a lot worse. And unfortunately, um, you know, vac vaccination rates in the United States are not as high as, as they um, as they as they should be as state and local governments now. You know, when, once the, the government was putting mass, man, you know, was putting vaccination mandates in place, uh, state and local governments, Texas, among them, were, were fighting it. I mean, it's just, it's just utter, utter madness. Um, let's let's move to uh, belly cargo. Right. I mean, it is it is Black Friday. Ron, uh, start us off, uh, because as we were preparing to tape the show, you mentioned uh, you wanted to mention belly cargo. I think uh, all Americans are carrying a little bit more belly cargo today uh, than than they were a couple of days, a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, walk, walk us through um, what you got on your mind. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm definitely carrying more belly cargo uh, for better, or for worse. Um, it just, you know, be it, you know, Black Friday and, and uh, a major weekend for, you know, commerce. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting topic to bring up that, you know, in, in cargo markets, everybody in the in, in the commercial aerospace industry right now understands that, you know, cargo is a, a hot place. Um, you know, Boeing is, is has brought together a number of cargo conversion centers for uh, narrow body aircraft. Uh, they haven't officially announced the 777FXF freighter. Uh, Airbus has the, you know, the A350 freighter, uh, but there's a lot of, of activity going on in the freighter market. Um, and if you look at the freighter market historically, and I think, you know, it's, it's fair, right? I think it's fair to look at markets still from a historical perspective, even though we're going through this, this, this odd transient period with uh, with, with COVID that you know, freighter markets tend to be feast or famine. And we're currently going through a really big feast in, in cargo markets. And, and you just have to wonder, is too much capacity going to be thrown at the, at the freighter market? And, you know, when, you know, how much, how much is enough when you think about, about freighters? 
so I, I thought that just as a general talking point uh, just might be interesting for us to to banter about. I think it's really interesting that you're looking at this from a freighter potential freighter bubble. Uh, Sash, uh, your your sense? Yeah, look, I, I agree with Ron. I mean, I, there's clearly a structural reason for new build freighters, uh, and hence the reason my Airbus launched the A350 freighter, and that's that the uh, emissions regulations that come in in the second half of the decade are going to make it somewhere between uh, prohibitive and impossible to uh, for, for airlines to continue to buy older generation and operate older generation uh, new build freighters. And, and that's a, those are regulations that particularly affect the 767 freighter and indeed the, the 777 classic freighter. Um, but I think that what the, 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 you know, the sort of the freighter evangelists sometimes miss is that there's actually two things that are causing this astonishing bubble in demand for freighted capacity at the moment. One is that there's just no international flying. And as of, uh, you know, Friday, there's less international flying than was being, this passenger flying, than was being forecast. Hence, the belly uh, capacity is just not in the market at the moment. So everybody needs main deck capacity. But the second issue is that air freight has suddenly become incredibly economic because of the the, uh, the bubble. In fact, it's bigger than a bubble. It's a massive over, over-pressurized balloon in surface freight capacity. And there was a, um, a UK retailer on the uh, radio uh, this morning who was saying that the cost of a, a single container uh, from the Far East to the UK has gone up from $2,000 uh, and, and you know, for the trip uh, a year ago to twenty thousand dollars. So when you have a a, uh, a move in the economics of sea freight like that, air freight is just you know just looks a, a complete slam dunk. But that can reverse, and it would help if we had a year when somebody didn't crash an astonishingly large ship into the Suez Canal. You know, those years occur. Um, so when surface freight. Uh, uh, prices reverse at some stage in the future. That's going to uh, really um, pull the rug out from uh, from under the, uh, the the new build freighter and indeed the, the freighter conversion mark. Richard, well, there's a couple of things I'd look at. One um, in terms of the you know uh, other indicators that point towards the health of the market. It's uh, as uh, Sash points out, you know, surface freight matters. I would also point out that the ratio between capital cost and fuel cost matters here again too. Because, of course, if you do have things sticking with fuel being relatively expensive and uh, fuel and capital costs, which means, of course, you know, how long, how, how much it costs you to carry an inventory, that should be bad news for the freighter market, the air freight market, in theory, just highly theoretical. Um, maybe people are betting that that situation changes, that interest rates actually rise and maybe fuel comes back down a little, which would be good for the freight market, at least, in, again, from a theoretical sense. Uh, the other thing I'd point out is that it's noteworthy that Maersk, of course, the biggest uh, shipper in the world, is uh, getting into air cargo. Uh, and, and that's certainly interesting. They seem to be voting on the side of stickiness, like, yes, the, the current trend towards air cargo is going to stick around post-pandemic, the big stickiness question being something that bedevils people who analyze markets, uh, whether it's business jets and, and or air cargo, will it will it persist beyond the pandemic? And uh, if Maersk is getting into air shipping, that, that, that certainly indicates uh, a vote of confidence in the, uh, the air cargo sector. Uh, and I should point out that GM Defense uh, sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain uh, command and control. Uh, we are now 
shifting to the defense portion of the conversation. Obviously, uh, the long-running Canadian uh, competition for a new fighter to replace the country's aging F-18s. Boeing's F-18 has been uh, dropped. Um, Things were looking positive for that airplane, but unfortunately, some of the uh, trade tariffs by uh, the Trump administration and penalizing the uh, Bombardier uh, C-Series ended up backfiring badly, driving uh, unfortunately, Bombardier, at least at least from an American uh, competitive uh, perspective, into the arms of uh, Airbus. Um, Boeing then produced the pursued an Embraer deal, and then that unfortunately fell apart, taking uh, what could have been a very good product line away from the American giant. Uh, now we have the F eighteen apparently out of the competition, and the races between the F-35 and the Gripen E. I should point out that Canada, since the beginning of this program, has been an observer uh, on the F-35 program. And obviously, some years ago, there was a a cost um, and, um, you know, protest on the non-competitive nature uh, of that uh, competition. So a a lot of water under this particular bridge. Uh, Richard, tell us how you think this ends up, because is it conceivable that the Canadians are going to buy anything other than an F-35 at this point? Not really. Um, you know, I mean, they've got a long-standing bias against single-engine fighters, which would seem to rule out the Gripen. The Gripen is a great cold-weather performer, which certainly matters in Canada. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, it's it's a great overall value-for-money jet, um, probably around half the price of an F-35. Um, but, but, you know, one thing that was mentioned in the sources for the CBC story, story was... Uh, that, that, that broke the news about the Super Hornet being out is that local content mattered, technology transfer mattered, jobs mattered. And this is a theme we're seeing across the board in many other markets too, particularly Australia, that uh, sovereignty and supply chains and everything like that coming back into vogue as a, as a, um, a decider, deciding factor in weapons competitions. Uh, so everything from technology transfer to jobs and um, well, the F-35, you know, it, because of Canada's status within the program, there is a fair amount of Canadian industry involvement in this program, whereas Gripen, I don't think there's anything really going on by way of Canadian involvement. And this is what led to the, uh, the Super Hornets undoing. Um, you can't, it's tough to resist the idea that maybe the uh, Boeing-backed Trump tariffs or uh, Trump trade complaint against Bombardier in the C-Series played a role here. As always, you know, can you actually identify the procurement professionals who factored that into their evaluation of the programs? You probably can't, but it's tough to resist the idea that somehow it played a role. Um, but it, it, this looks like a... To get to get to the bottom line here, it looks like a uh, a fairly straight line to an F thirty five acquisition. Sash and uh, Ron, your sense on where is this all going and what does it mean? And and Sash, if you want to bring in uh, the Croatian uh, decision to go with uh, used French Air Force Gripens, that'd that'd be uh, great too. Whichever one of you want to take it away at this point. First of all, here's a question. I think Rich has probably got a better um, hinterland on this than anything else. I can't remember a time when a fighter competition has come down to a Gripen versus F-35 playoff. I mean, that's real David and Goliath stuff. The two aircrafters uncomparable, except in the fact that they both got a single engine, it's possible to get. Uh, you know, you've got one very, very small, very simple, um, uh, easy to operate, not uh, aggressively stealthy uh, aircraft from Europe. And then uh, the F-35, which is the antithesis of that. Um, so 
you know, from Saab's point of view, I don't think they'll be able to believe it. I, uh, you know, to, to be in the last two against Gripen just suggests that, albeit this is a Canadian competition and therefore peculiar, uh, that, you know, there's something very right about Gripen and they'll take that to every other competition that they're in uh, ar around the world and say, look, Canadians thought we were as good as every other aircraft but the F-35. But the F um, the other thing, I mean, you know, just looking at sort of read across, here are the questions asked. What's the impact of this on the Finnish competition, which is pretty close to being decided? Uh, if the Finlands were looking at F-18 on the basis that, you know, it's US Navy likes it, it's in the finals for the uh, Canadian competition as well. And there is a concern suddenly that they might be the last ever purchaser of an F-18. That might tilt the Finns in, in the direction of F-35 or Gripen, which coincidentally are two of the other uh, major uh, competitors. Um, the Indian Navy competition, that seems to me to be Rafales to lose now. Um, and where does this put Germany, which after all had a sort of place marker there for an F-18 purchase for the nuclear role? Um, if the Canadians don't want it and the US Navy seems to be losing interest, why should they be the last ever purchaser of the F-18 either? I think it's incredibly bad news for the F-18. And uh, I think the Swedes will be just, the Swedes and the French actually, will be very quietly um, feeling pretty happy this evening, despite what's happening to everybody else's share prices. Um, I also want to point out, right, that the uh, the, the Gripen is a, a much modified version of the original uh, Gripen series. So it has the attributes uh, that the earlier jet had with a much more uh, modern and sophisticated avionics suite. It's a larger jet. It's got more range and more payload capability. I'm, I'm not trying to do any advertising for Saab, but it's uh, it's a significantly improved airplane that that still has some of those original base uh, characteristics uh, of 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 the jet. Ron, you know your your sense on this and what it all means. I mean, really, the only point I, I could add is from a from a purely Boeing point of view. Um, it's not good news, right? I mean, you know, the, the Boeing defense um, uh, franchise uh, arguably isn't the strongest among all the, the large primes, uh, and this would be a nice piece of business for the F-18. Uh, so if, you know, if, if this really goes this way and, and Boeing doesn't get it, um, it's just one more hurdle that they have to work through. Um, let me uh, ask a question, Sash, uh, just very briefly on the Croatian Rafal deal and, and what that means, right? I mean, the Rafal has been on a pretty impressive role, even if it's if some of these are with used airplanes, right? Yeah, I am. Uh, Rafal's had a had a very good couple of years. Um, uh, Croatia, as you say, used airplanes. But if you have used airplanes available and you are prepared to make them available um, and, you know, these are aircraft coming straight out of French aircraft um uh squadrons they're being refurbished but then they um uh then they get uh, diverted to Croatia so if you if your state decides that this is going to be part of its um uh diplomatic effort then uh you have a competitive you, you know you, you're in the competition um it's a pretty advanced aircraft frankly for for uh Croatia's needs um it, it was definitely a, um, a triumph for, for French diplomacy in that respect. I mean, I would have said... Say that, say that again, because you dropped out uh, entirely Sorry. for a little bit. Uh, Go ahead, it, say it, that again. 
So it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a triumph for French diplomacy. I would have said that Croatia was a, a you know, a classic customer for Gripen, frankly. So uh, to be able to sell an aircraft, albeit secondhand, uh, that is 50% bigger in terms of uh, takeoff weight is, a, it is very good. And of course, every time any nation sells a high-end fighter aircraft, the the pull through of weapons and support and so forth is, uh, is, is very impressive. So if you look at what um, France, and it really is Team France here, I mean, or Team Rafale, the two are pretty much synonymous, has, has achieved this year. You know, you've, you've got the Croatia order, you've got the um, second batch of Rafales for Egypt that we talked about the, the other week. Um, Dasso, Talis, Safran as the three big uh, suppliers and, and subsystem suppliers are going to end the year with a good increase in their backlog and good cash. Uh, and that's a very, very healthy position to be in. Richard, do you want to add anything on the on the Rafale point? Because I just want to end on the Jamie Dimon discussion. Go ahead. You know, one of the things is that France is clearly taking a page from the Saab handbook. The whole idea of rapidly cycling uh, national military inventories um, in order to, well, allow export customers to buy a relatively low hour combat jets. That was pioneered by Gripen um, with the uh, the Czech and Hungarian deals, and I think the Thai one as well. Um, it's not something the U.S. has ever really done, and France, not a whole lot either. You know, it's either you buy something new or you wait, you know, 25 years to buy a used plane. Uh, the idea of taking planes that are, you know, five, 10 years old, and then you know, using them to basically get uh, export customers signed up with, uh, I imagine, rather good value planes. I imagine that planes are a lot like cars where they lose a big chunk of their uh, value in the first uh, year or two. Uh, so they're probably getting a great deal. This is probably a terrific export tool that uh, the DASO folks have seized upon. Uh, I, uh, I, I tell you I, what, though, I Richard, I just... Of once it's once it's off the lot, it, it loses a lot of value. I think that's very funny. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, but but to follow on from that, Margaret, how often has anybody heard with a straight face the phrase "only one careful fighter pilot"? <laughs> um, well, uh, uh, I, I I do have to say, right? I mean, the French Air Force has a great culture of maintenance uh, on its airplanes, so I, you know. Uh, if, if you were going to have somebody taking care of those jets, having uh, the French Air Force be the prior owner is, is, is a pretty good uh, bill of health. It's like the Swiss F-5s that the Navy got a few years ago, just pristine because it was the Swiss. Exactly. Or, you know, but I mean, I, look, I mean, I think there are a lot of uh, great militaries out there. The Japanese take meticulous care of their airplanes. The Royal Air Force takes does a great job doing it. And so does the U.S. Air Force. Right. I mean, I think people from an airworthiness, uh, without belaboring this, uh, you know, have a tendency of, you know, if you're going to buy a high end asset like this, you, you have a tendency of taking care of it. Jamie Dimon's statements and, and what they mean uh, at the at the end of the day. Right. I mean, on the one hand, uh, I think he was being candid and I think being accurate. Right. I mean, he is leading one of the world's most storied investment banks and certainly America's largest investment bank. On the other hand, it's a company that does is, is looking to continue to do business in, in, in China. Is there kind of a broader lesson here for everybody? Because he seemed to be confirming his own point that China has a lot of traction uh, and as we've seen, whether it's, you know, the National Basketball Association or anything else, China's got a very long arm. So not only can you not talk in China, you can't criticize China anywhere because, right, U.S. members of Congress were going to Taipei um, and, you know, Beijing warned them to not go to Taipei, which is sort of absurd for lawmakers that had, uh, you know, 
their their districts are engaged in making automobiles, for example, right? I mean, they wanted to go and see the Taiwanese semiconductor industry. So it's pretty brazen for a country to tell members of Congress where they can and cannot go any more than, right? It's pretty brazen for them uh, to to sort of penalize the the chairman of an investment bank. I'm, I'm going to skip uh, Ron on this one because I suspect that he also faces uh, challenges seeing Bank of America. Merrill Lynch also does uh, a lot of a lot of business in uh, in in China. But uh, Sash, why don't you start us off and Richard uh, finish us off uh, about what this means? Because even though folks are standing up more and more to to China, no matter where they are, at the same time, it's it's moments like this where you can see the kind of influence that China continues to wield. Yeah, look, I mean, China is one of the world's two biggest markets. Slightly depends on the ranking, China versus US for, for a given product. It's it's massive. I think the difference between China and the US is that uh, the Chinese government um, has much greater control over the economy and much greater political focus over how you know how uh, other partners, whether they are countries or companies or individuals, uh, interface with China. Um, it's it's utterly unsurprising what what we've seen. Um, it's not a terribly it's not a pleasant look at all. But this is this is what happens when you're up against a, to all intents and purposes, monolithic political industrial uh, structure uh, with whom you have very, very severe policy uh, disagreements. And I think one of the issues that we're going to see increasingly, uh, you know, as we go into, uh, into 2022 is going to be a, a bit of a focus by investors on companies that have a high exposure to China. It's been brilliant for the last 10 years, 15 years. You know, if you've had a high exposure to China, and this particularly applies to the autos companies, um, uh, then, you know, that has become your major strand of, of earnings. It's been really important for the uh, civil aerospace companies. You know, Boeing and Airbus, a third of their uh, output, particularly of narrow bodies, has gone straight to the Chinese market. You know, Rolls-Royce has has sold or you know the a the largest single proportion of the Rolls Royce Trent seven hundred installed bases in China, um, but what has been a um, an unalloyed positive over the past decade, I think the balance is tilting there very very substantially, and I think that investors are starting to get you know be aware that this could be a negative as well, if particularly uh, U.S. or Chinese relations with the West, whether that's the U.S. Australia or some countries in Europe starts to uh, starts to toughen. Richard? You know, if you've got a um, somewhat pessimistic view of Chinese relations with the West, and Lord knows the past, I don't know, five years or so certainly warrant that kind of pessimistic view, uh, you might just regard this whole thing as kind of a matter of time, that maybe there's something we could do to stop decoupling, but nevertheless, it's we're going to proceed in that direction until further under until further notice um and there were a, a couple of columns both in the new york times and foreign policy in recent months saying that sort of james bond will be the last place to see decoupling that basically historically james bond in all previous movies over the past half century has fought potential enemies of the west all over he's not gonna fight a potential you know chinese secret service agent not for a very long time because that means that hollywood uh, has decoupled from China. That's going to be the last one. It's pretty clear from uh, Jamie Diamond's comments that they're going to be the second to the last. <laughs> 
for everyone else, it's it's just possibly a matter of time unless something changes. I would slightly disagree with the assertion that this is monolithic China. It's monolithic Communist Party. And under under uh, President Xi, they've taken China down a dark and unpleasant path. It's really that simple. Will that change? Uh, I hope so. But, you know, one thing that I guess propels him down that path is a deep, deep, deep insecurity about his position in life and the realization that if they don't maintain legitimacy, the well, you could have your Ceausescu moment where they're not, in fact, cheering at you. They're threatening to sever your head. Uh, so they're going to be insecure about these things and maybe it doesn't work out for them. Um, and until that moment changes or until that that changes, then we're heading down this path towards decoupling, but banking and Hollywood are the last places to decouple. And uh, last, uh, Ron, I just want to give you a sense. What are you going to be tracking over the next uh, week? What are you looking ahead to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, kind of the, the fallout from uh, this latest COVID variant and, you know, kind of what it what it really means. So that's, that's, that's job number one. And then two, actually, I'll be doing a little bit of uh, travel this week, uh, visiting some clients uh, in, in Canada. So it'll be my first uh, international trip. Uh, it's for business. Uh, so uh, looking to see what's on, on clients' minds. And uh, Sash, what are you going to be tracking over the coming week, given, you know, going into holiday season and Europe's going to start slowing down sooner than not? We're going to be tracking the virus this week. Absolutely. Um, that's going to be the first thing. Second thing, um, I think the most interesting corporate event this week is going to be Safran, which has its Capital Markets Day uh, on Thursday. Um, and that's normally a time when the the company has an opportunity to start giving some forward-looking guidance about how it sees 2022. I would bet they're rewriting that that guidance and uh, you know taking a bit of the bullishness out um, and have done that just over the weekend. Uh, Richard, well, I'll uh, I'll be going to Canada as well and perhaps overlapping there with uh, with with Ron and really looking forward to that 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 also like Ron is my first international business trip since the pandemic began really looking forward to hearing what um, you know one of the more export oriented aerospace clusters says about the recovery because the US uh, aerospace industry of course uh, can always uh, you know console itself with the world's largest military market and a very very strong domestic aviation market as well Canada is much more heavily export focused. Uh, I'm really, I'm real. We're going to be intrigued to hear their perspective on things. Bon voyage to uh, you guys. Can't wait to have you guys back on again uh, next week. In the meantime, I hope everybody has a great week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. And happy Thanksgiving to you all again. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Hope to see you next week. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.